Hi, I'm Dan, and I want to welcome you to Church Online. If it's your first time, please take a minute and fill out a quick guest link on our website after the broadcast. We would love to connect with you, no matter where you're watching from. You can also give online by going to lifechurchutah.com or by texting LCGIVE to 95577 at any time during this morning's service. Once again, thank you for making Life Church Online a part of your weekend. For more information, visit us at lifechurchutah.com. So today, you know, well, this, uh, this month we've been in this series, I Love My Church, I Got My, my Shirt On, and, and uh, you know, I just have to tell you as we get going here today that I love this church. I consider it the highest blessing that I have ever received as a pastor to be called of God to be a part of this church fellowship. You guys have just been such a blessing in my life and Carrie's life. You have prayed us through some crises that we've had in our lives uh, over these 16 years. And we just thank God for the privilege of being a part of Life Church. And I can tell you right now, I love my church. And I'm grateful for it. And I'm thankful for what God has given us. And I mean that with all of my heart. Don't you just thank God for the wonderful music and worship that we have? I mean, there are so many churches that don't have that. And God has given it to us. And and I hear from people who travel the, the nation and preach in different churches and stuff, and, and, and they say, you know, what you guys have here is pretty unique and it's pretty wonderful. And sometimes I know it becomes easy to take it for granted and, and just kind of think, well, every, every place is like this, but it's not. So be praying for us and be thankful about it, but really commit to it as well. Let's, let's be people who step up the plate and we commit our lives and our energies and our efforts. And today I want to talk... Uh, with you as we bring kind of this little series to a close. I want to talk with you about measuring your love for your church. It's one thing to say you love your church, but how do you measure whether or not it is really true in your life? And that's really what we want to talk about today in the area of giving the love. Last week we talked about sharing the love. Well, today I want to talk about giving the love and it, as it relates to your church. And, you know, one of the things that I learned... Uh, through 45 years of marriage, and, and I learned it fairly early on in my marriage, was that actions, are, actions have got to be added to words. It's, it's, it was wonderful for me to say to Carrie, I love you with all of my heart, but there needed to be, in addition to that, some actions to follow up what I had to say. And I think that's really important in a marriage. I think it's really important in family relationships. Um, because just saying, I love you, it, 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 if it's not followed by actions and by acts of love, then it, it kind of rings hollow, you know? Uh, those words have to be backed up. It's important that we say them, but they have to be backed up. So Jesus, in fact, said this very thing, and he said it a little more succinctly than I just did. But in John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, obey me. In other words, let your actions follow your words. Don't just say something. It's easy to say it, but how you prove it is what you do. And so as important as the words are, the actions or acts are, are maybe even more important. So... We prove how much we love someone. When I say to Carrie that I love her, that is actually proven by 
maybe hundreds of little acts of love that are given to her from me on, any day, on a daily basis, in any given day, and from her towards me. That's how we reinforce the words that we say. God says in his word that he loves us, that we are the apple of his eye. I'm not exactly sure what that means. It sounds good. We're, we are that important to him. And he, he proved his love to us by sending his son to take the punishment that was due us for our sin. He paid the price for our sin. And so God backed up his words of love with action. And that's what we get out of John chapter 3 and verse 16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, if you have lived for Christ any length of time at all and have, have associated with people who are professing Christians, you probably know, without being judgmental, but it's just kind of become obvious to you, you know that some people who say they love Jesus, you don't really see it in their life. You don't see the fruit of it. You don't see the actions coming out. They don't seem to act like it. Jesus said that it's easy to say something, but the proof is in our actions. Which is the point of what he said then in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 20, where he said, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by, not what they say, but by what? Their actions. What they do is revealing what's really in the heart. Now, it's not to say that what they say is not also important. It is. But saying alone is not enough. Doing alone is not enough. Saying and doing becomes the, the, the proof of, of what's in our heart. Now, the simple point that I'm trying to make today is that words are not enough. Whether we're talking about our relationships in a marriage, in a family, in other, you know, within a church, and other human relationships, or if we're talking about a relationship with God. Our words must be backed up with our actions. So as far as our relationship with God is concerned, we demonstrate our love for him, not just by what we say, but by how we live, which you know, essentially means that we're becoming, we make it a point of our Christian lives to become more and more like Jesus. We want to become more like Jesus. Well, we use those kind of terms a lot, but what does that really mean? What does it mean to be more like Jesus? Well, I think it means taking upon ourselves the character and the nature of Christ. And so as we see him relating to people in the Gospels, it gives us a picture of how we are to relate. Not so much with people who love us, because that's fairly easy, but with people who don't like us, with people who might in the natural be called our enemies. How did Jesus react to enemies? How did Jesus react to temptation? How did Jesus react to the priority of God in his life? That is a living picture of how we are to live, not in our own ability, because none of us can be that, but by the Spirit of God. 
empowering us and enabling us to do that. So it's taking on the character and the nature of Christ. That's what it means to be more like Jesus. Now, if I were to to take this opportunity to identify what I think is maybe one of the most important traits of the character of Christ that I want in my life, but I think is really important for all of God's people. It kind of, to me, it stands out above all the rest. If I was to ask you what you think, because I'm going to tell you what I think in just a minute. If I was to ask you what you think, and we were to take time to get everybody's opinion, we'd have all kinds of answers, and all of them would probably be right. And I would hear things like, well, the greatest characteristics of, characteristic of Jesus is love. He's incredible in his love. Or holiness, or patience, or long-suffering, or kindness, and gentleness, and, and all of these, these marvelous qualities that we see in the life of Jesus Christ. And all of that would be true. But to me, there is one trait that stands out above all the rest. In fact, this one trait makes all the rest of them work, in my opinion. This is just my opinion, okay? And I see this in Jesus, and I want it in me. And I would define that trait with this word, generosity. Our God is an incredible, incredibly giving God. He gives to show his love. Generosity is the hallmark of his love. Go back to John 3.16 again. That's exactly what it says. For God so loved the world that he did what? Gave. It doesn't say that God loved so much that he was holy. It doesn't say God loved so much that he was patient. It says God loves so much that he gave. That was the expression of his love. And so if love doesn't give, we learn that it has no value. It's one thing to say it, but love has to be expressed. Not just in words, but in actions for it to have any value. Look over at Romans 8.31. Paul says here, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? You know, and sometimes we go through things in our lives that we wonder if God is for us. Sometimes we wonder if God's paying attention. Sometimes we wonder if maybe even God's against us. Are you out to get me, God? Look at all these things that have happened in, our, in my life. So how do we know that God is for us? Verse 32 gives us the answer. Since he did not spare even his own son, but what gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? So the measure of God's love is that he gave his son. He didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us. That is how I know that God is for me. And a lot of people, they say, well, if, if God is for me, then, then why do I have this disease? If God is for me, why did I lose my child? If, if God is for me, why did I lose my job? If God is for me... Why am I losing my marriage or whatever? And I understand those kind of questions because life creates a million questions for which there are no easy answers. But Paul said it's not a matter of health. 
And it's not a matter of wealth, and it's not a matter of trouble-free living. You gauge God's love for you in this fact alone that he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us. What did he do? He gave. He loved us so much that he gave. Now, some people say that 1 John 4, 8 is the greatest definition of God. And that simply says, God is love. And you know what? I don't have any disagreement with that. That is perhaps the greatest definition of, of God. But if that's true, then this giving that he ties to his love, the giving of his son for us is the greatest action that is tied to that love. Because love must show itself in action for it to be of any real value. And, and I believe that you and I show our love for God we, in, in the greatest way when we generously give of ourselves. When we are generous people, we are expressing the nature, the character of God and the fact that the love of God is within us. So a selfish person who thinks only of themselves is, they can say all they want about how much they love God, but their actions prove that it's not true, that he certainly doesn't have first place in their life. Now, there obviously are many different ways that we can give. We give encouragement to one another. We give apologies to one another. We, get, you know, we, we do a lot of things. We give, we give, we give in a lot of different ways. And the Bible encourages all of that. But there's one way that I want to just deal with this morning, acknowledging that all those other things are important too. I want to talk about one truth in God's word that is, is under this area of giving that I think is exceedingly important and, and is oftentimes in today's culture avoided in churches. And it's the truth of the giving of the tithe. The tithe. And why, you say, why is it avoided? Because a lot of pastors are so afraid of offending people that they won't bring the truth of, of giving and, and, and what the Bible says about it to their people because they're afraid that somebody will get upset or offended and I want you to understand my heart. I want you blessed beyond measure. I want you to know the fullness of God's blessing in your life. And I believe that I have proven in my life that the tithe is one of the critical parts of the blessings of heaven upon your life. So what is the tithe then? The tithe is simply defined as a tenth. So when the Lord says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, what he means by that is we are to bring him a tenth of what we make. So let's make this easy. If you make $100, God's word says 10 of that 100 belongs to him. It's according to God's word. It, it, it's holy unto him. Now, you can say, well, how can that be good how, how is that a good deal for me? Because I can't live on 90% of what I make, and it may be true that you can't. Maybe at this point in your life, you can't, you can't make it on 
of what you make, you might think, I've got to have everything, so, so this is a moot point for me. But this is where you have to decide that you're either going to trust God or you're not going to trust God. And, and so I want to take you to the, re, the remainder of this verse. It says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord, uh, I will open the windows of heaven for you and I'll pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. And so this is one of those verses, and you find these throughout the scripture, that has a premise tied to a promise. That's real important for you to understand. We want the promise. Sometimes we're not cool on the premise. But the premise in most every case, precedes the promise, all right? So Jesus says, give, that's the premise, and it shall be given unto you, that's the promise, okay? So this is like that. The premise is you bring all, all the tithes unto the Lord and worship of the Lord, and so obedience and everything. The promise is I'm going to open up the blessings of heaven upon your life in ways that you never saw coming, you never knew it was coming. It will be an incredible manifestation of my blessing upon your life. And then the only time in scripture you'll find this is the last two sentences. Try it, put me to the test. This is the only time anywhere in the scripture that God says test me on this. Is right here on this issue of the tithe. Now, I will tell you that Carrie and I have lived our entire, entire marriage uh, life without regretting one single dollar that we have given to God's kingdom because we have found Jesus to be faithful to his word. Now, here's what I've learned in life. I've learned that the devil wants to keep you in poverty. He wants to keep me in poverty. That it, he wants you to have a poverty of spirit, a poverty of soul, a poverty of faith, and a poverty in every other area of your life. The devil wants to keep you down. If he can't keep you out of heaven, he wants to keep you down. Absolutely in every area of your life. He wants to make all of us a bunch of victims. And the victim mentality is rampant in American culture today. It's rampant, and it's destroying the future of people who buy into it. I don't want you to buy into that. Jesus, on the other hand, wants to make us overcomers. Jesus, on the other hand, wants to make us victors in absolutely every area of our lives, living with abundance and with blessing. I'm not just talking about money, but I'm talking about in every area of your life. That's God's intention. But this is what I want you to understand. It's so important. It's what I've learned in my life. The choice of which way you go, a victim or victor, is up to you. I can't choose it for you, and you can't choose it for me. And, and so, the, because the key to this abundance that I'm talking about is this whole idea of generosity. When you are a generous person, God pours back into you blessings of a variety of kind, especially when you're generous and faithful with your tithe. So it's 
your tithe, I want to be clear here, is not the key to you getting to heaven. Paying your tithe doesn't save your soul, but it is the key to abundant blessings from God. So with that in mind, I want to give you three principles that I think will help you in regard to this whole area called the tithe. And especially if you're newer in the faith, I want you to understand why this is so important. Number one, I'm going to call the principle of ownership. Why does God ask for our tithe? Because that's the way that we declare that we show that he is the owner of all that we have. So when, when Adam and Eve, let's go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, and so forth. When Adam and Eve were put in the garden, God told them that they could eat from any tree that they wanted to partake from except for one tree. And that tree had a, had a name. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and God says, don't eat of that. You can eat of all the rest of the fruit, all the rest of these trees, but just not that particular one. And then he, he gave Adam this warning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. He says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So don't eat of that tree because in the, in the day you do, it'll bring a curse into your life. And, and you know what? Everything was fine. Adam and Eve, they, they, uh, I, they just kind of did their thing day in and day out. They had jobs to do. And they didn't get involved with the tree until chapter 3 and verse number 6. And I don't know how much time passed be, between uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, and three, uh, chapter 3, verse number 6. But at some point in there, Satan entered into the scene and, and convinced Eve that not obeying God here in this, in this issue would be good for her and would be good for Adam. And they bought into the lie, and this is what happened, Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And we all know the rest of the story. That's not been so good since then. My back's hurting right now. It's their fault. <laughs> See, I blame them for everything. No, but it hasn't been too good on the human condition, the human scene. But I don't know if you ever stopped to think about it before, but what was, what was the big deal about them eating from this tree. What was the great sin of verse number six? Was it, after, was it eating something that was good for food and pleasant to the eyes? Was, was, is, that, is that like bad to God? So is God against us eating stuff that's delicious? Is that the truth that we're getting from this? Is God against us enjoying life? Because it was enjoy, is that what we get? Is God against us having fun? Is God against good food? Well, absolutely not, because all of the rest of the garden, all of the rest of those trees were good for food and were delicious and were enjoyable uh, food. It, they brought joy to life. Now, this issue went beyond, you know, it's, it's one of those things that the reason's not really the reason. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes people will say, you know, I don't like this or I don't like this or something else for that, this reason or that reason. And, and that's really not the reason. They're just kind of telling you 
what it is. The, the real reason on this situation is because Adam and Eve were declaring their independence at, from God, their ownership of their own lives, and ultimately their ownership over the whole garden. So God was saying, the way you acknowledge that I'm the owner of the garden is you don't eat from the tree I tell you not to eat from. In that way, you acknowledge that I'm the owner and you're not. And you can have the most wonderful life possible, but you just don't touch, you just don't eat from that particular fruit because I said so. Because I said that it's going to bring a, a great destruction into your life if you do. And so I'm telling you to honor me as the owner and not eat of that. So the sin was them saying, no, I don't think you're the owner anymore. I'm the owner now. I've decided I can make my own choices and I'll decide what I want to do with my life and I'll eat what I want to eat and I'll partake of what I want. You see what I'm going with this? And so that was the big sin that, that uh, brought the downfall of mankind. So now we move, we fast forward to our relationship to God today and it's the same thing. It all still gets down to this issue of ownership. Who owns? Do you own or does God own? Who's in charge? You or God? Except now it's not a matter of eating from a forbidden tree. Today God says that the way that we show he's the owner is through this thing called the tithe. It is holy unto him. And when we give it to him, we are acknowledging that he is the one who provided all of what we have in the first place and that he is the owner of all that we have. We aren't, he is. Now, frankly, that brings a lot of uh, peace to your heart too because when he's the owner, he's, he's responsible, right? So that's wonderful. But sometimes we get, you know, we get to where we want to do what we want to do. God says, no, when it comes to this area of your life, the tithe becomes a statement of ownership. I let you have 90%. In fact, I'm going to bless the 90% more than the 100%. If you keep the 100% for yourself, you'll barely get by. But if you, if you obey me this and acknowledge that I'm the owner, I'll make the 90% prosper you more than you ever could have if you'd have kept that other 10% yourself. And that's what God is saying to us. So when I pay my tithe, I'm making a statement that God owns all that I am, that he owns all that I have, and not me. And I secondly break the curse off of my finances, and I create the opportunity for abundant blessings to begin to flow into my life and into my family. Tithe declares Ownership. Number two, I want to talk with you about the principle of first things. So I've already told you that the tithe means a tenth or 10%. But is it just any 10% or does God get even more specific? Well, let's look at what he has to say about how we're to acknowledge him as owner over our lives. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, because he really speaks to this issue. He says, I want you to honor me with everything you own. And then give me the first and the best 
And if you do, your barns will burst and your wine vats will brim over. So this is one of those premise with a promise deals again. All right, the premise is you honor God. This is how I'm going to bring blessings into your life. So he says we honor God with everything that we own. So that, again, means that he's the owner, and we acknowledge that. Now from this, this whole amount that God has given to each of us, he asks you to give him a tithe from that, or 10%, to acknowledge that I understand this, Lord, that everything I have has come from you. And, you and, and maybe you recoil from that and you say, well, wait a minute. I'm the one who went out there and worked 40 hours last week. It wasn't God. It was me that was uh, digging that ditch. It was me that was putting in those extra hours or whatever. And, and yet it was from God because he says in his word, it's, it is him who gives us the power to make wealth. So that means not only the physical ability, but the mental ability to create wealth within our life. That comes from God. So all of this, I mean, I didn't create the gold or the silver or anything else of value in this world. God created all of that. I don't, I don't possess any of that. And if I do possess it, it doesn't mean it's mine. It came from him in the first place. And when I, when I give him my best and my first, it acknowledges that, that I understand that he is, in fact, the one from whom it all came. So the 10% acknowledges that all of this came from him. But here's what I want you to get to in, from this verse. It's not just any 10%. Look what it says here. It, we give him the first and the best. So now we go back into the Old Testament again. And when Israel brought their tithe and offerings to God, they were to give him the first of their flock because they were not primarily a money-oriented culture. It was, it was agricultural. And so they brought the first of their flock, the firstborn, and the first of their harvest, either or or both. And then they were also to bring the best of their flock and the best of their harvest. So the way the law read was if the first wasn't the best, they were to replace the first, they were to buy it back and replace it with an acceptable offering unto God. They couldn't just bring any old thing, even if, if it was first, if it was defective, he wouldn't accept it. And so they had, to, they had to buy that back and replace it with an acceptable sacrifice. And we understand that. So no defects. And then he gave them this promise. If you put me first in your life, I will cause your barns to burst with harvest and your wine vats to brim over. In other words, I will prosper you. So this is what we learn from all of this today. And, and I will tell you, this is what Carrie and I practice. This is worth writing down. Giving is first before paying. Giving precedes paying. That means we give to God before we pay our bills. And of all the giving we do, the tithe is the first. We give our tithe first, then our other giving comes be a second to that, and then we pay our bills later. And in that way, God says we receive the, this blessing of verse number 10 that he talks about up here. Uh, he promises to meet every need of our lives. Now, here's the key. So 
you don't pay your tithe off of what is left over at the end of the month or the end of the pay period or whatever. You don't pay your tithe off of your leftovers. So this is how it works in my life. I don't pay my house payment before I pay my tithe. I don't pay my car payment before I pay my tithe. I don't spend on entertainment before I pay my tithe. If there's anything, and then, you know, if there's anything left, I give my tithe. No, your tithe has to be first. And so that comes out, the first thing that I pay is my tithe. And the reason for that is simple, because paying God first is declaring that God has first place in your life and that you're trusting him to meet every other need out there that you might have. It's called the principle of first things. And this is how Jesus said it in Matthew 6, 33. If you seek first the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, then God will give you everything you need. And th- this, this is a test, but it, it works. It is true. If we trust God. Now I want to wrap this all up by giving you the principle of faithful persistence. So I was talking with this young woman uh, recently that was making some poor choices with her life. And I said to her, you know, it's not a matter of how you start your life. It's a matter of how you finish. That counts. It's not the starting of something. It's the ending of it. Paul said in Galatians 6, 9, he kind of put it this way. So let's not get tired of doing what is good at just the right time. We will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. And that's what I'm talking here about, faithful persistence. You've got to to be faithful to this during the hard times because you will be tested. If you make a commitment to this, you will be tested. But if you pass the test, if you are faithful to that, the blessings of verse 10 well, not that one, but in Proverbs, will, will be upon your life in great, in great portion. I will tell you that I believe that many of the positive commitments that I made to God years ago, as a teenager even, that I've kept with persistent faithfulness through the years, are now proving to bring great blessings in my life at this stage of my life. Because of what I did back then, God has multiplied it back into my life. And not the least of these is the tithe. And this hasn't always been easy. I'm gonna tell you something right now. Um, About four months ago, I found out on my own, as I began to do a little research, that our tax preparer had made a huge mistake with our 2015 and 2016 taxes. IRS didn't discover it. My tax preparer didn't discover it. I discovered it. Because I'm an honest person, I had to make that right. And so I contacted my my, uh, tax preparer and I said, I think something's wrong here. She got back to me a couple of weeks later and she called me and she said, I've been scared to death to make this phone call. But I blew it royal. And I said, okay, how bad is royal? And she said, I'm not going to give you the amount, but it was thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars that we were not planning on. 
Now, when that happened to us, would it have been easy for us to have said, well, God, we need our tithe right now more than you need our tithe. You own the cattle on a thousand hills, so I'll let them take care of you. I'm, I, need, I need this money for myself. Yeah, it would have been real easy. Was it ever a temptation? Absolutely not. Because we have proven through the years that God is faithful to his word when we are faithfully uh, persistent through even difficult seasons of life. Things come along that we, did not, that we don't expect. They're not written out in our plan, but it happens. And so, without going into detail, God, you know, we, we made arrangements and we, we paid this money totally up to the IRS and took care of it. Um, and we aren't through the whole course of it because it's like only been four months, so the effect of it is still there. But I will tell you that having lived for Jesus as I have and having seen him come through for us time after time after time that I know with every breath of my life that my God will be faithful to help us and to see us through. And the day will come that we will look back on this and say, look what the Lord has done. Look what the Lord has done. There will be times that you will make a commitment to God that you'll be challenged whether you're going to fulfill it or not. And it's going to be tough. But if you will keep your commitment to Christ and keep him first, I'm telling you, it'll set, it'll set some wheels in motion in your behalf that are going to change the course of what's going on in your life. And you're going to look back on that and say, look what the Lord has done. This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com.